Our sermon series is Be Prepared, and today we're going to be addressing Be Prepared to Meet God. Prepare to meet thy God. Now, whenever I hear that in a church, or maybe uh, there's a street preacher out on the corner and he's got a sign, Prepare to Meet Thy God, or you see a meme online, I always, I tend to think, well, yeah, I've done that. I've pretty much am prepared to meet God. And, and that may be true of almost everyone in here today, or you, you wouldn't be here in church. You've done those things that prepare us to meet God. So why do we continue to talk about that? Or why even address it in a message? Well, maybe, it's, uh, maybe preparation is not just something we have done, but preparing to meet God is something that we continue to do and continue to build upon. After all, most of what we know about what happens in our salvation and prepares us, we know from the New Testament. And those letters of the New Testament were all written to churches. They were all written to people who were already Christians and who were already saved. They're just going, they're going deeper into their knowledge and appreciation of salvation. I'll give an analogy. I was thinking about this, reading Aaron Chambers' book, Devoted. Aaron Chambers Many of us know Aaron, he wrote the book Devoted, and in one of those chapters, he is reflecting upon his father, Roger Chambers. Now, I knew Roger as well, and some, maybe some of you did. He passed away back in 1988 when Aaron was just a boy. So Aaron's now grown up, and as a grown up, he's, he's reflecting on his father, and, and here's part of what he writes. As I look back now with more understanding and insight into what my dad gave up for my siblings and me when we were growing up, I know he loved us because he demonstrated it through countless sacrifices. While we were still children and incapable of giving him much, he regularly went without lunch so my siblings and I could afford our extracurricular activities. He taught extra classes and took speaking engagements so that we could afford to take vacations. He drove an old yellow Pontiac station wagon, a.k.a. the banana, instead of a new car or even a slightly newer car so that he could keep the kids fed and clothed. Then he goes on like that. So what, what Aaron is doing here, he's reflecting and meditating now that he's older and mature and he has a deeper appreciation for his father. That doesn't make him any more of a son. He's, there's still the same amount of sonship there. But it deepens his appreciation and maybe heightens his commitment to live according to his father's value system and probably his anticipation for being reunited with his father in heaven. And likewise, when you and I were saved, let's say most of us here are saved. When we were saved, we knew what we knew. We knew what we knew at that time. But as we grow older and as we grow older in the Lord, and we reflect and meditate on those saving events and their significance. We can grow deeper in our appreciation for God, our love for God, our commitment to God, and our anticipation of meeting one, God one day in heaven. And so what I want to do this morning as we, we continue this sermon series through 1 Peter, the latter part of that letter, we're just going to take a look at two saving events. These prepared us to meet God. There's one to be believed and another saving event to be experienced. So Peter starts us off with that which we have believed, the saving event to believe. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, 
but made alive by the Spirit. All right, that's, that's the saving event, the foundation of our salvation that prepares us to meet God. There's a lot packed into that sentence. I'm going to say four things about that event. Number one, he was suffered for our sins. Christ died for our sins. This is the idea in Christianity of the atonement. It is the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. He took our place. Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. We have not, but he dies in our place. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul said, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So God transfers the righteousness of Christ to us. It is imputed to us. All right, died for sins. Number two, he died once and for all, Peter says, once for all. So this is kind of in contrast to the animal sacrifices that the Israelites made under the Old Testament. They would bring these animals and sacrifice them again and again, year after year, so that they might be ceremonially cleansed according to the law. But Peter says, not Jesus. For With Jesus, it was once and for all. It's one and done, his sacrifice for us. Third thing about the saving event, it was to bring us to God. He suffered and died to bring us to God. Now, this speaks of what we call reconciliation. We are reconciled to God. The death of Jesus removes the enmity and the hostility between us as rebels and God as our creator. Paul puts it this way, Romans 5.10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Reconciliation. And then the fourth thing, is that Jesus did not stay dead. Peter says he died in the flesh, but he was made alive by the Spirit. So he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. We know that. This is the resurrection of Christ. And Peter is emphasizing that the Holy Spirit was instrumental in Jesus' resurrection. Did you know that? That's the consistent teaching of Scripture. The Holy Spirit was instrumental in that resurrection. For instance, Romans 1.4. Christ was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit. So all of these things, the death of Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, once and for all, raised from the dead, this is the event that forms the foundation of our salvation, preparing us to meet God in a good way. Otherwise, we're not prepared to meet God at all. We have not believed that. We're not prepared. That meeting would not be one that we anticipate with hope and joy. Let me share with you kind of a, a well, kind of an embarrassing story from my college days, but it, it's illustrative, so I'm going to share it. I worked a number of part-time jobs through college. Many of you who went to college maybe did as well. One of the ones that I worked was at a meat processing plant. My best friend and I, TJ, uh, we were hired to go in there in the, in the processing plant at night after they'd finished their work to clean all the machines. They used their cutting up this meat. We would clean them. We would sterilize them. We would sanitize them. The boss said, this will take you two hours, maybe three at the most. So we would go in at seven o'clock at night and, and do that work. So, but as we, as we were doing this job, as time went on, we found 
that it was not taking us two hours and maybe three hours. It was taking us three hours, maybe four hours, sometimes five hours. Now, granted, some of that time we were goofing off a little bit. We'd been more focused, probably two hours, maybe three. But we weren't thinking that way. We were thinking, oh, you know what? The boss kind of misrepresented himself on this job. We're having to do a lot more work than he's actually paying us for. And our sense of justice was offended, you know, our sense of fairness. So one night, we just decided to quit. We just walked off the job without cleaning all of those machines. Don't look at me that way. <laughs> You've done something like this before too. But So this was back around 1978, 1979. They had things back then called answering machines. Remember the answering machine? So the next day, we kind of slept in. When we got up, there was an, a message waiting for us on the answering machine from our boss. And boy, he was livid. He was so angry. We can't work today because these machines aren't sterilized. He said, I'm going to sue you, boys. I'm going to get you kicked out of your college. I'm going to call all your references. I'm going to call your parents. It was the worst part. I definitely did not want him to call my mom. And we were, TJ and I were so scared. What are we going to do? So we went to the dean of students, who was Professor Mike Chambers at that time. Some of you know Mike Chambers. We said, my chambers, what do we do here? We told him what happened. He was, not, he was not particularly sympathetic to our side of the story. He said, I tell you, here's what you're going to do. You're going to march right back to that meat processing plant. You're going to go face that boss. You are going to apologize and throw yourself on his mercy and try to make it right. That is not what I wanted to hear. I did not want to go face that boss. We knew we were wrong by this time. We knew we were in the wrong. Just thinking about that made me sick to my stomach. I'm a little sick right now. Just it's 40 years later, I can still remember. But that's what we did. We went and met, we met the boss. You know how sometimes the anticipation of something is a lot worse than it actually is when it happens. This was not one of those times. It was every bit as bad as I thought it was going to be. It was terrible. He told us off told us how bad we were, and he made us get out there and clean those machines, which we did. All the workers were standing around watching us, you know, because they couldn't work that day. It was just horrible. But I, that's what I thought of when I was thinking about prepare to meet your God. It's one thing to go and meet God when we're prepared through this great saving event, when Christ has died for us and reconciled us to God. It's something else. It's something else when we haven't. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 10.31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I can't help but wonder about people who maybe have rejected the gospel for much of their life and then as they're getting older and the, the reality of mortality may be sinking in and they're laying in bed at night. They're knowing, they know they're going to die someday. And there's this deep sense that, you know what, death is not the end. And I know I've done wrong in some sense. And I'm going to be facing God. And I don't feel like I'm ready to meet God. It's that sense of dread that I had to go and meet that boss. But multiplied 10x, 100x. Thank God for the saving event that prepares us. There's a scene in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 3. That's one of the prophetic books. And Zechariah the prophet has this vision. It's a courtroom scene. And you've got a fellow by the name of Joshua who's standing before the judge in the courtroom. And there's a prosecutor, prosecuting attorney. His name is Satan. And you know, the, the, the name Satan literally means accuser. 
And Satan is accusing Joshua. You did this. You did that. You rebelled. All of these accusations, and it's all true. You know, Joshua's just withering there at, in this judgment scene. But then we read this in Zechariah 3, 2. But the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusation, Satan. Yes, the Lord rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. God steps in. So that may, that may all be true, but I reject it and I reject you and I'm saving this one. He belongs to me. And later on, the Lord says to Zechariah and he says to Joshua, you represent things that are still to come, things that are in the future. He's looking forward to Jesus Christ and what Jesus was going to do on the cross. One day we may stand before God in judgment and we may feel that sense of guilt, but our Lord Jesus is our intercessor. He's the defense attorney. He's the one who steps up and says, well, you know, he may have done all those things, but this one belongs to me. This one belongs to me. We're snatched from the fire. We're prepared to meet God because of what Jesus has done. So that's saving event number one. That's what we as Christians believe for our salvation. Now, saving event number two. Here's the second saving event. The one that we experienced. The saving event that we obeyed or experienced. As Peter continues here, verse 20. He, he references the ark. In the ark, he said, this would have been Noah's ark. In the ark, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, you've got that saving event that we believe. Now, this is the one that we experience. So let's just say four things about baptism here. <clears throat> Number one, baptism saves. Peter says, Baptism saves. This is a succinct summation of what all passages in the New Testament that teach anything about the significance of baptism teach. They all teach baptism saves. Mark 16, 16. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. And on and on and on. Very explicit statement. Number two is baptism's appeal. How does baptism save? Well, we don't have to speculate. And Peter gives us some of the ways. He says, number one, through the appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, we know we are conscience-stricken. We are guilty because of the sins that we have committed. But in baptism, we are making an appeal to God. The word here in the original language is appeal. It's a request. It's like a prayer. We're calling out. We're crying out to God. God, in baptism, I'm calling on you to keep your promise and your word to save me at this time on this occasion, and in this way. Uh, one theologian calls this, is, says baptism is the actual sinner's prayer. It's in baptism that sinners are crying out to God to be saved. As Ananias says to Saul in Acts twenty two sixteen, Why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on His name. Third thing to say about this event is what about that good conscience? How does baptism result in a good conscience. It's because baptism is for the remission of sin or for the forgiveness of sin. As Ananias said, it is in baptism that our sins are washed away. As Peter says, same Peter who wrote this letter, Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what results, that's where we get the good conscience, the clear conscience from. Our sins having been forgiven. 
Another passage on baptism in Hebrews 10.22, the Hebrew writer says, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So in baptism, our bodies are being washed with pure water, but at that time, there's a spiritual significance. It's not the water. It's God who's going to work and washing our hearts clean with the blood of Christ. Hearts sprinkled clean here is a reference again to the Old Testament when the Israelites would sacrifice these animals. And the priest would take the blood and he would ceremonially cleanse or purify those Israelites by taking a a hyssop branch, dipping it in the blood and sprinkling it on the people. So splattering the blood on the people that ceremonially purified them for another period of time. Well, that's the comparison that's being made here, is that when we are baptized, God is taking the blood of Christ, He is applying it to our hearts, cleansing them, forgiving us at this point in time. The psalmist writes, Psalm 24, 3, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy presence? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive the blessing from the Lord. And I read that and I say, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, because I haven't always done that. My hands are not always clean. I have sometimes sworn deceitfully. I don't have a chance unless God has (coughs) spiritually, supernaturally applied the blood of Christ to me and cleansed my conscience. Then we come to God with a clear conscience. Fourth thing about the saving event, is baptism's resurrection. Baptism's resurrection. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is where the true power of salvation is. It's when Jesus was resurrected that he demonstrated himself to be the Lord and proved he had authority over death and the grave and the authority to forgive sin. Lord, elevated to the right hand of God has all that authority. There's an odd miracle in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 3. Maybe the most odd miracle in the Old Testament, which is saying a lot. And what happens there is there there are a couple of Israelites. They're having a a funeral. They're burying their friend who's passed away. They got the grave like half dug. When over a rise in the distance, they see a band of Aramean raiders They come over the hilltop and they start riding in their direction. These guys are scared. They panic. In their panic, they toss the corpse, or they toss it in the nearest receptacle they can find, which is a hollowed out cave, a tomb itself. And they take off running. They don't have time to finish the the funeral ceremony. Now, did you read this in 2 Kings chapter 3? What happens is when that corpse... It happened, they, where they threw it happened to be the tomb of Elisha, the prophet. Elisha, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And Elisha's bones are in that tomb. And the Bible says, when that dead corpse touched the bones of Elisha, the body was reanimated and came back to life. Now, we don't... It doesn't tell us what happened after the body came back to life. I assume he he saw the Aramean raiders and he took off running after his friends. But I thought, that is very odd. Why is that even in there? What is the significance of that? I'm not sure, but it reminds me of this. 
That miracle reminds me of this. The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And when we are buried in that watery grave, plunged under the water, we go down dead. And there in that water, God goes to work. And he applies the blood of Christ. We come in contact not with the bones of Christ, but with the blood of Christ. And we are spiritually reanimated. We're brought back to life. We go down dead and we come back up alive. With the righteousness of Christ imputed to us with our sins forgiven, prepared to meet God. The saving event that we believe and the saving event that we experience. Now I've got a postscript here. A po- the postscript has to do with uh, what some would call the pious unimmersed. What a So what about all the believers who have lived who never were baptized? Or maybe they weren't baptized by immersion. They weren't baptizo, they were redzo. You know, they were sprinkled or poured, not immersed, or never were baptized. This is hard to answer because there is not a New Testament verse that addresses that circumstance. Uh, For the first 1,500 years of church history, there was no such thing as as an unbaptized believer. Everybody was baptized. Certainly in the New Testament, all believers were baptized. Baptized, But in in 1600s, Holdrick Zwingli radically reinterpreted baptism, said it had nothing to do with salvation. So thereafter, you have a lot of unbaptized believers in church history. What about that? So in one sense, there's not a scripture that directly addresses this. It's not for us to say. (coughs) Excuse me. It's outside of our wheelhouse. It's above our pay grade. Anyone who's died is in the hands of God. And he's the one who makes judgments about everyone, baptized or unbaptized. And and that's the best place for everybody to be, is in God's hands. He's going to do the right thing. Nevertheless, I wanted to um, read something my go-to theologian wrote, Jack Cottrell, about this. Cottrell writes, with regard to the future, in the final judgment, We can expect God to judge all persons who have received baptism improperly, or not at all, in the same way that he will judge everyone else, namely, in accordance with their conscientious response to available light. Light here represents truth. No one will be condemned for failing to meet some particular requirement as long as he is conscientiously responding to whatever light is available to him. Human traditions have seriously distorted and limited the light of Scripture concerning baptism. And many sincere people have responded in good conscience to what light they have. For this reason, we may hope to see such people in heaven. Now, this last point does not permit us to give anyone false assurance about his present state of salvation, nor does it give us the right to change the clear teaching of Scripture on believers' immersion for salvation. The available light principle applies only to future judgment, and it can be applied only by the omniscient God. For us today, as individuals and as the church of Jesus Christ, we must continue to believe and proclaim the clear biblical teaching about baptism without cowardice and without compromise. So food for thought. I mean, that's that's not scripture. 
That's, that's just a theologian, uh, but a thoughtful person and, and something to consider and think about. I have one more postscript. Uh, the second postscript is basically don't procrastinate. If there are believers here, if there are believers watching online who for whatever reason have not been baptized, do not procrastinate. Here's the verse that I left out in this pericope, uh, verses 18 through 20. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. That's an odd verse. It's very difficult to interpret. Uh, it's, it's, I'll just, I'm not going to bring my study into here this morning, go over all the possible interpretations. The best I can tell is that while Jesus was in the grave, his body was in the grave for those three days. His spirit went and, uh, at least part of the time, went to what the New Testament calls Hades and the Old Testament calls Sheol, the abode of the dead. And the people who were living during Noah's time are simply representative of those people. And he made a proclamation of some kind. He didn't preach the gospel, two different words. This is not oengelion, this is not preaching the gospel. He made a proclamation. <clears throat> Maybe something along the lines of what he says in Revelation chapter 1, uh, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I was dead and now I'm alive and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Just standing up and saying, I, I, I did it. I did it. I have the victory. So regardless of whether that's the case, the part that I want to focus on is what Peter says here, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. The patience of God. As far as I can tell, it took about 50 to 75 years to build the ark. Noah was preaching presumably that whole time. We know he was preaching presumably the whole time. In 75 years, Noah only had seven converts. And they were all members of his own family. And when the day of judgment came, the floodwaters came, there were eight people in the ark when the door was shut. And that's how many were saved. A lot of people procrastinated. We are in the days like when the ark was being constructed, when the door is still open and the preaching of salvation is still available. The ark was the position of salvation. Everybody who was in the ark when the judgment came was saved. There is a position of salvation today. It's not an ark. It is Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want to be found in him. In him, we have the righteousness of God. There is a door by which you enter into Christ, the position of salvation, just like there was a door in Noah's ark. And that door is baptism. Galatians 3.27, all of us who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Romans 6.3, all of you who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. So anyone who's thinking about that, think about it. Make sure we understand what's happening, but don't procrastinate. The door is open today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we reflect today, we think once again, we meditate on your great saving acts, your saving act in the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, and your saving acts in baptism when you applied the death, burial, and the resurrection to us. Lord, we can only grow in our love for you, our appreciation for you and your grace, and our commitment to you, and our 
looking forward, Lord, to meeting you one day in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.